Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you are at this particular time as you're watching this video or this online streaming. It's good to see you and have you here as we come again to worship God together in a very different setting. This setting is quite interesting. We're looking at the beautiful lake behind us, lake just a few blocks from our church, and we're here to worship God in a very different setting. So we're going to return to our study of the book of Philippians. The title of the series is called Rising Above the Victim Culture. And the point of it is, is that as we look at Paul, as he writes the book of Philippians from prison, he is writing to show his heart and his passion for God and his joy in spite of his extreme circumstances, for which he was a victim by most standards, unfairly treated and abused as he is forced into a Roman prison, but writes a book of great joy and hope nonetheless. So let's just have a moment of prayer and then just take a look at God's word in the book of Philippians. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your presence. We ask you would speak to us this morning that you would help us to find the joy, no matter what the circumstances, that Paul himself was discovered and learned through his life in trusting you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, some of you might remember it. It goes back a little ways, I guess. It was There was a TV show called My Name is Earl. It was an interesting show. And the leading trailer that started each week that introduced each episode portrays a man named Earl. And in the story of Earl, he was a public nuisance. He was a pain in the neck. He was always in trouble. He's a petty thief. He was a vagrant. He was a liar. He was a drain on society. And he lived an impoverished life because of his carelessness and his futility. And the trailer then shows him winning the lottery. And just as he jumps up, to celebrate his new found wealth, a car hits him, and he's taken to the hospital. And while he's in the hospital, he begins to reflect a little bit on his life and what it means and what it is. And while in the hospital, he watches a show on TV that describes the Hindu doctrine of karma. Karma teaches you that what you do in your life affects the outcome of your present and future lives. In other words, if you do good and you live a good life, something good will come your way. Or if you do bad things, something bad will come your way. If you want good things to come, you have to do good things. In fact, the great theologians, profound theologians, Rogers and Hammerstein, they portray it in their song on Sound of the Music that says, I must have done something good. It goes like this. If nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in your youth or childhood, I must have done something good. And each episode of the series of Earl is trying to change his karma by trying to return the people he hurt and correct it. It seems that many, often even professing believers, espouse the idea of karma or some variation of it. At surface value, it seems to make sense. We teach our kids that if you live good lives, they're going to be successful. The reformed drug user, the alcoholist, or the sex addict often tells of his former life and how when he became a Christian, all these bad things passed away and their life became good. The Old Testament promises wealth to those who obeyed God and as part of his covenant, causing some to believe that if I suffer when I did something wrong, I did something to cause it. 
In fact, you read the book of Job, it's the counselors that were supposed to be there to encourage him often use that accusation. Job, you must have done something really bad. Otherwise, why would this even happen? But the problem with this doctrine is that it's not always true. In fact, there are far too many exceptions to it to be able to see it as a doctrine at all. In recognition of this reality, the psalmist even goes far as to ask the question. In Psalm 73, he says, why do the wicked prosper? And in the psalm, he reflects on what he was seeing around him with the wealth and the prosperity of the wicked. And here he was, a good man living for God, and he was enduring hardship. He observes the world. He cannot make sense of why evil men seem to succeed even while the good may suffer. If the idea of karma were true, we would certainly expect a degree of fairness in life. And yet, it doesn't always hold true. The fact is, as Jesus told us, that God's kingdom is upside down. The way to up is down. Suffering may be the path to greatness. It may be part of our lives. Life does not always get easier when we become a Christian, but it should give us some meaning to our suffering to help us understand it and put it into perspective. Last week, we began a study of the book of Philippians. And we titled it, Rising Above the Victim Culture. We learned that Paul wrote the book of Philippians from prison, a brutal Roman prison, but he writes as a victor, as one who rose above it, not as a powerless victim and goes, woe is me, look at my dire circumstances, feel sorry for me, and whatever. He was motivated by love for those he was trying to reach, not by hate, just because they rejected him, he would not berate them. God's kingdom, again, is upside down. Instead of good people being freed from suffering for their faithfulness, because the gospel is an offense to many people, it frees us from a life of hopelessness, but not necessarily from suffering. But people don't want to hear what the gospel has to say, because at its core, you have to acknowledge and recognize that you are a sinner in need of saving and need of grace. It requires us to admit our sinfulness and our imperfections, That's something most people simply don't want to hear. And that's why it's an offense to so many. And that's why so many reject it outright. We saw last week as we looked and opened the book, the need to pray, as Paul did, for others who are going through the same things that we are. This morning, I want us to see that suffering is part of the Christian life, but our suffering has meaning when we are faithfully serving God. I want us to consider the question, how can suffering be used for our good and for God's glory? And so we're going to look at three responses to that question. The first response is this. Suffering can be used as a means to advance the gospel. Notice what Paul says in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1. Now I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole plan to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. What does it matter? The important thing 
is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and of this I rejoice. Let's just observe several things from what we just read. First of all, Paul is rejoicing because Christ was being made known. That was Paul's drive in life. He understood the resistance that he would face, but he did not let him slow him down. He did not let it discourage him. It was a cost he was willing to pay because he understood that without the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross to take away the guilt and penalty for our sin, without that, none of us would have any hope before God. And he knew that people needed to hear that message. He was singular in his focus, and he was persistent in his mission. Another thing that we can observe is this, that others are encouraged to share by his example. These verses teach us that because of Paul's faithfulness and persistence, it gave others the encouragement to speak the word of God boldly. Others saw his mission, his passion, and they wanted to share in it. The final thing to note for this first part is this. Even those with wrong motives can advance the gospel. We find in Acts 8, there's a man named Simon. He was a sorcerer. He saw what was happening with the disciples as they were sharing Christ, as they were uh, able to do at that point miracles. They saw the people coming to him, and he wanted in on the deal. And so he tried to make and negotiate with them to get part of the action. And so he asked his disciples to teach him what they knew so that he could be part of that. And he was proclaiming the gospel, but certainly for very wrong motives. Jesus himself speaks of others sharing his message for wrong motives. Paul rejoices with this reality that even though they have the wrong motives, he says, at least the gospel is being proclaimed. And in that he rejoiced. There's a TV commentator that some of you may, may still know. He's still on TV quite regularly. His name is Britt Hume. And he made a comment a few years back regarding the moral lapse of golfer Tiger Woods. You might remember his episode that uh, he, moral indiscretions, and the interview with Brent Hume created a lot and stirred up a lot of anger. He said, Tiger Woods will recover as a golfer, but whether he can recover as a person, I think that's a very open question. The Tiger Wood that emerges once news value dies out of the scandal, the extent to which he can recover seems to me depends on his faith. He's said to be a Buddhist. I don't think that faith offers the kind of forgiveness and redemption that is offered by the Christian faith. So my message to Tiger would be, Tiger, turn to the Christian faith and you can make a total recovery and be a great example to the world. Let me read just part of the interview that was part of what CT Magazine had in the interview. They asked, how would you respond to people who are criticizing you? Because his comments stirred up great anger. And Hume said this, I expected this. I'm nowhere near the first Christian to be mocked for his faith. It's simply a fact of life that the two most explosive words in the English language appear to be Jesus Christ. You don't even need to say them if you speak openly of Christianity. Faith engenders a tremendous reaction, a lot of positive and a lot of negative. I think Britt Hume had it right. For all the intense criticism he got, there were many who were moved by his message. And so it is with us. And so it was with Paul. Don't give up sharing just because a few respond critically. Expect it. It's a harsh reality many do not want to face, and they withdraw from their faith. They're not willing to face some of the hardships that go with boldly proclaiming who we are in Christ. 
there is a second response to our question, how can suffering be used for our good and God's glory? And it is this. Suffering can be used as a means to exalt Christ. Notice what Paul says. Philippians 1, starting at verse 19, he says this. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is necessary for you that I remain in the body, convinced of this. I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Several observations. The first one is this. That was Paul's supreme goal, to exalt Christ. The reason that Paul could endure the persecution and the suffering that he faced, it was because his supreme goal was to make Christ known, to glorify him. And if he could do it through continuing to live, which would allow him to share his faith, he said, that's great, that's wonderful. But if it meant death, then he would be in the presence of God. Either way, it was a win-win for him. He wouldn't lose either way. If Christ was exalted, whether by life or death, he came out ahead. It enabled him to live a fearless life and a bold life of faith. But we also learn from this passage that suffering reveals a person's faith unlike anything else can ever do. Paul did not fear persecution or poverty or rejection or even death because he knew that it was exalting Christ. He had nothing to lose. It seems some people are often driven by fear, especially the fear of death. In fact, Right now, we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and I think this point is made very clear. Most of what's happening in the response is driven by fear. Many people are living in fear. Their fear of catching the virus and fear of death that may come out of it. It has crippled our economy and has forced us to hide away into our homes and avoid facing any risk out there as though life can somehow be safe. We have taken draconian and unprecedented measures because of fear of what it could do. Our response seemed to have produced as much suffering as the cure that it was intended to reduce. Only people who have a purpose greater than themselves can find meaning in suffering. Freelance writer Greta Christina She published often in feminist and even adult magazines, and she's brutally honest regarding her dilemma about dying. As an atheist, she realized she has a problem with facing death and disbelieving in an afterlife. Writing in a magazine popular with skeptics called The Skeptical Inquirer, she writes this. Let me read it. She says, death can be an appalling thing to think about, not just frightening, not just painful. It can be paralyzing. The fact that your lifespan is 
infinitesimally tiny fragment of the life of the universe that there is at the very least a strong possibility that when you die, you disappear completely and forever, and that in 500 years, nobody will remember you, and in 5 billion years, Earth will fall into the sun. Thus, this can be a profound and defining truth about your experience that you reflexively repulse that you flinch away from or refuse to accept or even think about consistently pushing it back to the back of your mind whenever it sneaks up in fear, that if you allow it to sit in your mind even for a minute, it will swallow everything else. It can make everything you do and anything anyone else does seem meaningless, trivial to the point of absurdity. It can make you feel erased, wipe out joy, make your life seem like ashes in your hands. But she does find some hope, however, and she says this, what matters is that we get to be alive, we get to be conscious, we get to be connected with each other and the world, and we get to be aware of this connection and spend a few hours mucking around in its possibilities. We get to have a slice of time and space that's ours. And yet to read her perspective of life and of death, it's a sad commentary that far too many people share. And it's one that it seems to be communicated throughout all of our media, that fear of death cripples those without God, for there is no hope without him. And they intrinsically know that. And yet, when your purpose is to exalt Christ and to live for him, it gives our lives meaning. And even suffering has meaning. It reveals the genuineness of our faith, and it reveals that our hope is real. There's a third response to our question, how can suffering be used for our good and God's glory? And it is this, suffering can be used as a means to enhance spiritual boldness. Look at what Paul says, starting at verse 27. He said, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whenever I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one's man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose it. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since we are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Notice three things. First of all, he's saying this. When Christianity is under attack, we must stand together. When Paul says, whatever happens, he's referring to attacks on the church and himself because of the stand that they took on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And such attacks, he calls them to conduct themselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel. That means they're not driven by hate. They're not driven by revenge. And that we support each other firmly standing regardless of the storm that may be swirling around us, that we are there together sharing this mission. Elton Trueblood calls the early church the company of the committed. They saw themselves in a spiritual war in which they have the upper hand. They have the ultimate victory. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There's a power in it, an eternal power. But we also learn that persecution is a sign of the genuineness of your salvation. To test our authenticity of something, it has to be tested. Well, our faith is no different. There must be tests, and there are tests that we endure to see if we will stand true 
to the gospel of Jesus Christ and live for God. And the final thing we will notice is that the Christian life involves believing and suffering. Let me read to you a couple passages that drive this point home. The first one is 2 Timothy 1, 8 and following says, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who has saved us and called us to live a holy life, not because of anything that you have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it now has been revealed to the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. And yet I'm not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which I have entrusted unto him until that day. And another passage later on in that same book, Paul says this, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, my persecutions, my sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? the persecutions that I endured. And yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, we have a cause bigger than ourselves, bigger than our circumstances. Our calling is to exalt Christ and to share the gospel. And we must accept that part of that calling may involve suffering. It may involve rejection, but God can use that suffering for something better than we could ever imagine. The influence of Paul and the early church felt that we still feel the results of what they went through. We still feel it today. We still have our Bible. We still have the gospel. The churches are still thriving. The mission has not changed for the last 2,000 years. This morning, we learned that suffering for the cause of the gospel can be used as a means to advance the gospel. It can be used to exalt Christ and to enhance spiritual boldness. You see, karma is a great idea. It sounds good. It sounds attractive. It sounds genuine for many people because it teaches you that if you do good, then you'll reap the benefit. Your life will be good. Things will go well. But you see, God's kingdom is upside down. It may not go that way. Faithfulness to God may involve rejection from the world, but our cause is bigger than ourselves, and the the eternal consequences are wonderful and magnificent for those who faithfully follow Christ. Let me leave you with several things to reflect on. Don't get discouraged if God brings suffering into your life. Suffering is not necessarily caused by something that you did wrong. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Are there things in my life that I'm wondering, what did I do wrong that would have caused this? And maybe you need to ask, what is God doing in my life through which I can exalt him? A second thing, make sure you're living for a purpose greater than yourself. Don't just live for the daily day pleasures and the food and all the other things that go with it. Live for something bigger and greater. That's what the gospel gives us. Also remember, life is not about us. It's about exalting Christ. It's about living for him. And finally, I want to say this. Don't become a victim when people reject you, criticize you, or attack you. It's going to happen. It's life. It's what it is, especially if you're living faithfully for God. 
We're not victims. We are people of God on an important mission that will ultimately be rewarded with an eternal and wonderful reward. We are the ultimate victors, but we have a few tough battles that we have to endure along the way before that day comes. Let me close with a story of a woman named Ninny Hammond. She was the executive director for the Southeast Outlook, a newspaper she founded in Louisville, Kentucky in 1988. She worked as a reporter for a small newspaper in Lebanon, Kentucky. And on May 14th of that year, newspapers throughout the country carried the story of a bus that crashed where 24 children and three adults died in what was called the worst drunken driving accident in Kentucky history. The bus carried a youth group from the First Assembly of God Church in Radcliffe, Kentucky. And though Ninny did not cover the story, many of her friends were reporters in the county where the children were from. And witnesses who survived the crash told of one particular passenger. His name was Carl Kaita, the youth minister of the church. And Chuck was seated in the front seat of the bus behind the driver. And when the gas exploded a heartbeat after the collision, he was instantly encircled in flames. And when Chuck saw the flames around him, witnesses said he looked up and he lifted his hands and he cried, Jesus, I'm coming home. Some kids said he was even smiling. Ninny wrote this. I was not a Christian in 1988, so I couldn't make any sense of what Chuck did. Here's this guy, so cool, a bunch of kids call him banana, standing in flames moments from a horrible death, and he's smiling. No matter how hard she tried, Ninny could not erase from her mind the image of Chuck. Ninny wrote this in her book. The only way to explain how a man could calmly accept, almost welcome a painful death, was to acknowledge that he understood some great truth that I didn't, that he had something, that he had faith, that he had hope, God maybe, something I didn't have. And try as I might, I couldn't help yearning for whatever that he had might make a thing of death to embrace rather than to fear. Two years later, Nina would come to Christ and she says this, Chuck Kita planted a seed in me that took root in my heart. One day, I will see Chuck in heaven. I will tell him how the manner of his death pointed me toward eternal life. You see, Chuck, like the Apostle Paul, reminds us that we have something of eternal value to look forward to, that we need to share the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others have something to look forward to. And that gospel teaches us that God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die in our place to take the guilt and penalty for our sin and that we can spend eternal life in his presence. It's urgent that we share that message regardless of the cost.